Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it's good to know that when we come, we don't speak to an idea. We speak to a person, the God who came close, the God who is near. Help us, Lord, to hear your voice through the scriptures that prophesied your birth, your death, your resurrection. As we marvel, Lord, at your words and actions on the worst night of your life, help us to feel and know that we are loved. In Jesus' name, amen. I couldn't be any happier and any more grateful for everyone who serves here week in and week out, and particularly this morning for these students uh, who've led us in worship this morning. Super grateful for you. It's the most ironic thing in the world that as we developed social media, which everybody spends half their life on, Americans are becoming lonelier. People track this and do scientific surveys asking people about things like their, their loneliness and their friendships. And just in the last few years, actually, researchers believe as a direct connection to the advent of social media, when it comes to asking Americans whether they feel lonely, people of number who, the number of Americans who report that they have no close friends has tripled in just the last few years. Same survey asked people, how many confidants do you have? How many people do you have that you can share your whole life with, that you can confide with? The most common response, zero. No one. And the number of people who said they had three people in their life who they could discuss important matters with that number of people available to share what matters most in life, the researchers say, has dropped down to two. We're living in a lonely age. All kinds of reasons for that. One, if you're young and you, this hasn't dawned on you just yet, understand this about social media. Almost everybody shows you the highlight reel. You're living in your gag reel and they're showing you the highlight reel. And Comparisons can be tough. You can feel very much alone. Loneliness is brutal. It, it, actually, it actually hurts our health. Physically, mentally, emotionally, there's just nothing good about feeling alone. Even if you're not, the experience of loneliness is devastating. To break a person psychologically, all you have to do is keep them away from people for a short period of time. You can provide them everything else. Just deny them human contact. Everyone will be damaged pretty quickly. So we all do our best not to be lonely. Every single one of us. And one thing for sure about loneliness, no one chooses it. You become lonely. Nobody deliberately chooses that kind of solitude, that kind of emotion. But Jesus did. We're in now what is commonly called the Passion Week. In other words, the week of the suffering of Christ. 
Palm Sunday remembers a day when he was welcomed into the city and people shouted praises to God. Soon enough, those voices, perhaps some of those very same voices, will change to shouts of accusation. And maybe the people that hailed him on one day screamed for his crucifixion just a few days later. And Jesus will experience solitude, loneliness, aloneness as no one ever has. And the the moving thing about Scripture, as I'll show you in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, is at the end of his life, Jesus chose to stand alone. It was something he deliberately chose. In fact, he had unimaginably great resources to not be alone, but he steadfastly chose to be all by himself to do things that he alone could do. Look with me in Matthew 26, and you'll see what I mean. Matthew 26, the first gospel in your New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, please uh, help yourself to one near you. If you need one at home, please take it home with you. I'm in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verse 47. Jesus is now in the famous Garden of Gethsemane. It's a little grove of trees. It exists today. From it, you can see the city where Jesus will be subjected to the mockery of a trial. You can walk down a short hill across a very shallow valley and walk up into the city. It's a place he clearly frequented with his disciples. On this night, he has celebrated with them what they considered the Jewish Passover, but Jesus, as he celebrates it, explains to his disciples that all of these ceremonies, every one of these elements, all of these promises actually point forward to him. That even the Passover was prophetic, even the Passover was a promise that God would send his son the Lamb of God, who alone would take away the sin of the world. So they've celebrated that. And at a certain point in the Passover, Judas has slipped away. The disciples, completely unsuspecting, thought that he was going out into what John describes as a dark night to do a good deed. But he's not. Jesus has gone into the garden to pray. He's taken some of the closest of his disciples with him. They're overcome by grief and sorrow. They cannot stay awake. Jesus prays alone. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, even as he's speaking to them, this is what happens. Matthew 26, verse 47. While he, Jesus, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. The religious machinery that has hated Jesus for some time now, who has actively plotted his death, is about to succeed. It's the most ironic picture in the world. Religious men have come to armed and ready for violence. They're ready for trouble. It's completely unnecessary, and it shows the darkness not only of the night, but of the human heart. Verse 48 makes it worse. Now, the betrayer, that's Judas, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, sees him. Strange to our ears 2,000 years later in North America, but 
then and now in many cultures of the world, a familial, friendly way of greeting both men and women is to give a kiss on the cheek. And perhaps Judas thinks that this most notable and famous of man even now will be confused with one of his disciples, and he made this terrible arrangement. I'll kiss him hello. The man I greet with the sign of friendship and trust and love, that's the one you need to arrest. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Judas doesn't speak often in the historical record of the New Testament, but every time he does, he never calls Jesus Lord, not once. He always calls him teacher. And we would all do well to remember that because many people across the world are willing to salute Jesus and call him a teacher, and they appreciate his wisdom and his character. His love is undeniable. His compassion is unequaled in human history. So they're willing to call him a teacher, but not willing to bow their heart and bend their knee and call him Lord. And that's Judas' eternal mistake. He has been in the very presence of God. He has seen Jesus say and do things that only God Himself can do, and it has not reached His will. It has not changed Him. It has only cloaked the evil that is there. And tonight, He betrays Jesus with a kiss and a respectful greeting. Jesus is no victim. He knows exactly what's going on. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And it was a moment of terrible shock for the disciples. They were not prepared for this, evidently. Jesus has told them over and over again that he must be betrayed, he must be arrested, he will be subjected to a mockery of a trial, and he will be killed. But sometimes the hardest things in life, even if they're spelled out to you, are impossible to hear and understand, and that must be what's happening here. And one of the disciples closest to him tries to stop it. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Matthew does Peter the courtesy of not naming him. Another gospel does. But it's Peter. First to act, first to speak. And tonight, a commercial fisherman is going to act with violence probably for the first time in his life. This little sword that Peter has tucked into his garments was probably to him a daily tool. But he sees shadows and lights being cast across Jesus, his disciples. He sees fears and anger register in the face of all of the disciples. He sees wicked men armed with torches and clubs and swords. And in one very loving, faithful, but futile moment, he decides to try to put an end to this. And a commercial fisherman tried to kill a servant. He's not a killer. Probably that's why he only managed to wound him. Another gospel will tell you that even now, Jesus exercises one more miracle of healing and heals this man and gently corrects Peter. 
Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? And with that verse, Jesus takes you from the dirt of first century Jerusalem into the supernatural. He speaks of something that He knew better than they, as it is in all things. He speaks of angels. Our culture is currently fascinated with angels. If you go to Barnes and Noble later this afternoon, you'll see a whole little section. People having angelic visions, people hearing messages from angels, angels talking about Jesus. Little tip. If what the book says about Jesus, even if it claims to be from an angel, differs with what God has already said about Himself, it's not true. Angels can tell the truth and angels can be deceptive. These angels that Jesus cites are holy angels. And He says, Peter, don't you think that I can't, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of messengers? That's what angel means. The Bible doesn't tell us much about angels, but it tells us this much. They are created beings. They are not like God. They are made by God as we, as we are. The Bible explicitly says that they are ministering spirits. They were made, in other words, to serve. They were made to serve their Creator, as you and I were, and they were also made to serve believers. They're unimaginably stronger, better, wiser than you and I are. But they're not the point of redemption. We are. But they exist to do God's bidding. And Jesus says, even now, a simple word from me to the Father would send legions of angels to my rescue. Did you see how many he mentioned? Twelve legions. Let me translate it for you since we don't live in the Roman world. A Roman legion at full strength was a force of 6,000 men. So Jesus says, He will send me more than 72,000 angels right now. And as I look through my Bible, I find in 2 Kings 19 a story of a single angel. A brutal Assyrian king named Sennacherib has surrounded the capital city of Judah. When the people look out over the army, the people inside the besieged city know that their death will be slow, but it will be certain because they cannot escape. And no one can come to help through this ocean of soldiers that surrounds them. But Second Kings says, and Isaiah that tells us about the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus adds, in passing, that in one night one angel went among the armies of Assyria, and the next morning when people looked out, they saw 185,000 fighting men dead in a night. That's essentially the population of Huntington Beach. With one, one angel, one avenging angel sent among them to defend people that God was not done using just yet. That was one. Jesus says, more than 72,000 await one word from me to the Father, and this will be over. That means that this silly little group with their torches and clubs and swords would have been like so much sand blown into the wind. 
It could have been over at any moment. And when I think about this passage and I think from what little Scripture tells me about angels and I see their reverence and their worship of God, for instance, there's some angelic beings that are in God's presence who say over and over and over again that God is holy, holy, holy. When I see that they do His bidding, they exist because He wanted them to, and they do exactly what He says at the moment He wills it with power that He has given them. And they have greater insight into spiritual matters than I do because they live in the very presence of God. It's hard for me to imagine, but it's an awesome scene to see this army of 72,000 ready, willing, waiting, looking over at the throne, waiting for a gesture, a word, a thought. And it will not come because Jesus is choosing to stand alone. The best efforts of his disciple Peter won't save him. And 72,000 angels will have their, their action stayed in heaven because Jesus doesn't wish it. Jesus says in verse 54, how then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me day after day? I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then one of the saddest verses in the New Testament. Then all the disciples left him and fled. All of them. Even beloved John. Even the one who was closest to Jesus, even the one that leaned over close to him and was the first to know the identity of the betrayer at the Last Supper, even John ran for his life. And maybe you've seen those moments, and in a moment of terror for life, for too many people, kinship and friendship is forgotten, and everybody runs thinking only of themselves. That's what happened that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Eleven men flee from the presence of one of their own, Judas the betrayer, and flee away from the presence of the man who had given them life, Matthew among them. There was a time when Jesus walked up to the man who's giving you the written account and said to him, sitting behind a Roman tax booth, come follow me, and Matthew stood up and did, and his life was never the same. And he saw the very work and person of God working as no prophet ever could or ever has. And Matthew, along with John and Peter and all the rest, ran for his life. And Jesus was completely alone simply because he chose it. Why? He's told us so. He's told us so and he's told us why in two verses. Verse 54, how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Again, in verse 55, this time not to Peter, but to the crowds. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me day after day? I sat in the temple teaching, you did not seize me, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus chose to be alone because he knew better than anyone, and probably this night he alone knew that he was the only one who could keep God's promises. For hundreds of years, 
prophets and King David and men of all kinds have spoken of this night and spoken of this moment. Everything about Jesus' life has been prophesied in exquisite detail. Matthew knew it and wanted you to see it when he started writing his gospel. Matthew 1.21 tells you regarding the birth of Jesus that his birth had been promised. Read this with me. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 says regarding the Virgin Mary, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which God which means God with us. Jesus' name is given a common name in his day because people were naming their children what they most hoped for. The name he was given was Yeshua, which we have translated over to Joshua. It simply means rescue or savior. But this won't be like any of the other boys that were born bearing that name. This will actually miraculously be the son who was born from a virgin woman because though he is a human being, he is actually also at the same time somehow the son of God. That's why the virgin will conceive. She will give birth to a son, and what people will call him and remember him as once they see him work and they, see, they hear him speak, they will call Jesus Emmanuel, a Hebrew word which simply means that God is with us. He's not far from us. He's not aloof. He has actually come, and John would say, he's dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. He kept all of these promises. He's drawn close, and he's done it, Matthew says, and Paul explains later in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he chose to stand alone also because he alone is the one who could save us. That's what the prophets were promising. That's why people were giving children that hopeful name, knowing full well that their child could never do it. Jesus is the one who's going to save us. Paul once hated everything I've just told you. He lived in the earthquake of the influence and the work of God that followed Jesus' life and saw people believing in Jesus as their Savior in large numbers, and he hated the very idea of it and actually persecuted, participated in the death and the imprisonment of countless Christians until Paul, a religious man who was not there that night but would have stood in hearty agreement with those who came to arrest Jesus, Paul met Jesus one one day, Jesus literally knocked him off his high horse, and he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the world was never the same, because the greatest opponent of Jesus became his greatest preacher. And Paul wrote a young preacher named Timothy and explained the significance of Jesus and explains how only he could save. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says this. These are the words of a former skeptic. These are the words of a man whose heart once burned in anger against Jesus. Paul, who was once called Saul of Tarsus, wrote this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. A mediator is someone who stands between two parties to bring them to peace. Peace. 
He makes enemies into friends. He reconciles people. He bridges a gap so that people could come together. Paul understood as a student of the Scriptures how high and lifted up God was. That's one reason I'm convinced he hated the very name of Jesus. He thought Jesus was an imposter. He looked forward to the promises being fulfilled and could not believe that a simple carpenter from Nazareth, from one of the despised outward regions of the country that led people to ask questions like this, could anything good ever possibly come out of there, was actually the very one that God had promised. Now he understands it. We're right about this. There is one God, but there's one mediator as well. There's one mediator between God and people, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And that's what makes him a Savior. He stands between a holy God that must be approached on His terms. He stands between that holiness and me, and He gives us peace. He transforms the rightful judgment of God and every shameful bad thing I've ever done and makes us friends. He makes a God who cannot tolerate sin call me and you, if you trust Jesus, His beloved children. There's no one like Him. He's the only one who could save us. The author of Hebrews explains the same thing in one of the most compelling verses and one of the most comforting thoughts I've found in the entire Bible. Speaking of Jesus, we're told this, He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. What is Jesus like? What can He do? Well, He's able to save to the uttermost, completely, without any reservation, save them in every sense, utterly and completely, anyone who draws near to God through Jesus. And here's why. Here's the comforting part. Here's the part that's hard to imagine. Hebrews 7.25 says, He always lives to make intercession for them. What is Jesus doing right now? He's living today, alive, back from the dead, just as He promised. The life that He took back on Easter morning, on Resurrection Sunday, He continues to enjoy all these years later, and He lives today to make intercession for us. A mediator, an intercessor, kind of the same idea. An intercessor is someone who speaks on your behalf. But here's the beautiful thing about it. Pretty much every intercessor I've ever had here on earth, if I've gotten myself in some kind of trouble, an intercessor, the best they can usually do is plead your case and tell, you that you tell the person who's upset with you, yeah, they blew it this time, but he's not a bad guy, just careless. He just blew it. Can I tell you the good news of the Bible? When Jesus speaks to the Father, He never pleads your case. He always pleads His and that's why you'll be saved to the uttermost. God does something because of the sacrifice of His Son that the Father willingly laid down and gave His Son the authority to take that life back, and God raised His Son back from the dead. God did all that so that He could change your identity, change your reality, change His thought and His judgment about you, and He will never, ever change it. 
See, many of us are lonely and have lost friends and family because sometimes we've done things that deserve it. If we've embarrassed ourselves and hurt other people and they reasonably draw away and there's nothing we can do to reconcile them and bring them back. I've lost friends like that. And it won't ever be the same because of some stupid thing I did. And they changed their view of me. Here's the glory of the gospel. God never will. Because when my life is evaluated, it continues to be shot through with failure and sin. But my life, thankfully, has never been the issue. The life of Jesus always is because He always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God. That's your Savior. He chose to go alone so that you wouldn't have to. Jesus stood alone so that you would never have to. See, one of the reasons that loneliness is so painful is because it overtakes us, and as much as we are loved and as good as we may be blessed, there are some things that we simply have to face alone. Loneliness can come into people's lives for all kinds of reasons, whether it's foolishness in our own lives or foolishness in the lives of others, the nature of human reality, frailty, and sin is that relationships are continually broken, and even if they're ideal and flourishing and thriving, there comes a final enemy named death, who in spite of all the efforts of everyone who loves us, we have to walk through that valley by ourselves. Jesus knew that. That's why he came. That's why God drew near so that this final enemy named death, we would not actually face it alone. We would face it with his life defending us so that the valley of the shadow of death would be turned into eternal life. Just a few days ago, we lost a beloved member of this church who I am blessed and honored to call a personal friend. Farrell Buckles gave more than three decades of service to the Santa Ana Police Department working in some of the grimmest police work imaginable. And when he died, his department sent out a little, little bulletin informing people regretfully of his death and called him a legend twice in just a few paragraphs. He dealt with homicide. He dealt with death up close pretty much his entire career. And then death came for him, and it was very quickly, and that's part of the sorrow that we feel. But a few days before he died, he looked at me and he said, I'm at peace. And then as we say, cancer won. People say he lost his fight. Physically speaking, I suppose that's true. That's one accurate way of describing it. But the good news of the gospel is that when cancer or accident or injury or old age, when all of these things come upon us and we would resist them but we cannot and we face it alone, God, because of Christ, stands with us in that moment and we are not alone. Emmanuel is close. God is with us. 
and the worst read things, what we've worked to avoid our whole lives is used by God simply as an instrument in His hand to usher us into eternal life where we will dwell with the Lord forever. So Pharaoh Buckles is gone from this earth, but he's alive this morning. And if he were here, he would tell you that I'm telling you the truth, but I'm not telling you half of it. Because he has seen his Savior, and he knows Jesus now far better than his pastor. That's what Jesus died to do. That's why Jesus rose from the grave. That's what Matthew wants you to see from length to length in his gospel. Here are the last words in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 28, the last verse, Jesus said to his disciples, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The God who came close will always be with us. He stood alone so that you would never have to. So what do we do with a message like this? There's two reasonable responses. The first is if you don't know Jesus for certain as your Savior, you make sure of that this morning. The Lord who's been tugging at your heart and convincing your will and working past your pride, you say yes to Him. You humble yourself and say, Lord, I cannot save myself. I've been trying to. I've been working on it. I've been trying to do better. I get it. I can't save myself. I want you to save me. I'm sorry for my sin. Please save me. I don't know everyone's story. I don't know the spiritual reality of many hearts in this church. So I'm just speaking to you person to person to tell you to avail yourself, to take hold of the greatest gift you ever have and ever will be offered, to say yes to Christ, to say no to your own lordship, to move past Jesus, calling Jesus just a teacher and call him boss and call him savior, ask him to take over and save your life. And he will, he promised to. He said in the gospel of John, if anyone comes to me, I will by no means cast them out. Jesus has never refused anyone who's drawn close to him. If you're not certain of your salvation, make sure this morning. And if you are, if you know and you hear his voice, understand you'll never be alone. Never. Nothing that can happen to you on this earth will deprive you of the presence, the love, and the faithfulness of Jesus. When your day comes, whether it's soon or you have the blessing of dying in old age after a rich, full life, at every moment and on the worst day of your life at the end, Jesus will stand with you and make sure that you have eternal life. And the world around you that doesn't know Him doesn't have that security. So tell them. Tell this messed up, overly distracted, increasingly lonely society of ours, which is just people. We talk about culture, but it's just people and they're lonely. And they don't know the author of life. They don't have the safety and the security of knowing that their best life is will never be here. It's always in the future in the presence of God. Tell them. Tell your friends, tell your family. Tell a hurting world that nobody needs to be alone because Jesus was alone. He was alone facing the judgment of God. He was alone with sin so he could defeat it so that you and I wouldn't have to. Let's pray. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? That's a personal question for every individual in this room. Do you yourself know for sure
that Jesus has saved you. If you don't, could I invite you to humbly go to God and say, God, I am so sorry for my sin. I've been trying to save myself. I don't understand everything. I don't even understand everything that I've just heard, but I know this much. I cannot save myself. I want you to do it. Please save me. I'm sorry for my sin, Jesus. Please save me. Take over. Save me. Be my boss. Here's my life. Take it. Save it. Change it. You can pray just like that. You can use your own words. It's not a ritual. It's not an incantation. It's a moment of personal surrender to the only one who can save you, the only one who kept God's promises, the only one who came to earth to save you. Jesus is willing. He is able. He can save. Trust Him. If you do, the only favor I ask is that you'll let us know, that you'll take that connection card before you leave, fill it out, drop it in one of these baskets when it goes by, or you can leave it in one of the boxes at the exit. That won't make it official. Jesus will do that. That'll just let us know. We want to pray for you. We want to celebrate you. Know, we want to give you the basic resources, including if you don't have it, a Bible, so that you can begin a new life with God. If you have that certainty, listen, people all around you are dying for that knowledge. They're overcome with, la with loneliness and sadness. There's emptiness in all of the success. There's all, it always rings hollow because people know at the end they're alone. But they don't have to be. Give them that hope. Tell them your story. Tell them of Jesus. Tell them what He's done for you. Watch the difference it makes. If you know Jesus, it's for one simple reason. Someday somebody told you. You do the same. Be that messenger. Give people the hope of Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd work in this room right now, and for those who have been hanging on and they're not sure, I pray that right now you'd pull them across the line of faith. They'd stop trusting themselves and they'd start trusting you. Please, Lord, save anyone and everyone here this morning who doesn't have the certain knowledge that you have already given them eternal life. For those of us who have that knowledge with all of our failures and all of our doubts, we know you're more than a teacher. We have called you Lord and we have seen you work in our lives and you've given us that peace. Help us, God, be a congregation that hungers and burns with the desire that people would know you because you simply are best. You're the Savior. We call you Lord and we thank you for going with us through every ordinary day of life and for staring down and defeating the enemy of death so that we would never be alone. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Savior. Thank you, Emmanuel.